Super Nintendad's entertainment podcast is a part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com and... Thanks for listening. <laughs> this week on the Super Nintendad's entertainment podcast, it's war. All right, I'll bite. What does that mean? Console Wars. We're interviewing Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis. Oh, that's tonight? Mike, you better start thinking of some questions. That's not only tonight, that's now. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Super Nintendad's Entertainment Podcast. We're thrilled to have two guests with us this week, Blake J. Harris and Jonah Tulis, co-directors of Console Wars, now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. How are you guys? We're great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good, great to be here. For those at home, this is Blake. Uh, this is what I sound like, and Jonah. And this, tell us, and this yeah. is Jonah. This is what I sound like, although my voice may morph from time to time, depending on mood. <laughs> Jonah is a <laughs> yeah. chameleon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mine might as well, but that's just going to be characters that I play. <laughs> now, guys, I'm sure that every member of our audience is in some way familiar with Console Wars, the book or the documentary. But for those of you who are not, Console Wars brilliantly describes the iconic battle of the 90s that defined a generation, Sega versus Nintendo. And I think it's important that it goes in that order, Sega versus Nintendo, right? Yeah, we've we've gone back and forth a little bit about this, and, and we'd love to, to, to ask you guys, we'd love to ask you guys, so is Nintendo the villain? Sega's the hero of this story, right? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think where we're at is, uh, it's definitely a David and Goliath story, you know, like objectively speaking, going from 5% of the market to taking on Nintendo and surpassing them, as Sega did, is, you know, David-like. But uh, I think that, you know, as Joy and I will get into, one of our favorite aspects of directing this is that the Sega guys see themselves as the heroes and the Nintendo guys see themselves as the heroes. And I think they both have a good case. I was saying the point of view for the film was kind of how me and Blake first saw this. It was like, we knew Nintendo as this magical company. And sort of when we peeled back a little, we saw that, you know, they were monopolistic and wrong. We wanted the audience to see, you know, in the introduction, they're this magical company. And then you see this underdog Sega who sort of, you know, every character in that you see is like part of this underdog story. Sure. Um, and you see that and then you slowly kind of reveal what Nintendo is really like. And, and, you know, obviously later in the film, we reveal why they were the way they were. And that was sort of the important part because it kind of reflects how we kind of learned about how this battle began. You know, this is, this is sort of like, we, we told the story in a way that we, the way we learned it, cause we found it to be so fascinating, like that they were this way and then sort of reveal why they were. Yeah. It's one of those stories where, um, the fiction wouldn't be even as fun as the true story. No, and I, I, I Joe and I have talked about that. That like if it because we we're all you know we'll probably get into how we met, but like you know we were right. screenwriting partners for a long time, and uh, sure. I we've definitely said like if we were to script this out, our manager or producer would say like, oh no, this is like too on the nose. Like this yeah, I would never, buy, I would never buy it. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one would live in a comfort inn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's impossible. It's like that's the yeah. worst story. That's like the guy having tinnitus in Baby Driver. Come on, guys, yeah. you can do better than this. <laughs> Like, oh, Sega could have had the PlayStation and the N64. That's a little exactly. overkill. Just know, pick right? one of them yeah, to make exactly. the point. Now, I, I, kind of, I kind of argued with Mike on this when we first talked about the show on our show that, so we, we all know, obviously, and we did a whole show about the black box Nintendo games, that Nintendo brought the video game, especially the home console industry, back from a completely, a complete cemetery of the video game industry that was left from the early 80s. So I think that Nintendo kind of has the right to say, hey, this is this is something we did. We brought video games back into the home. I think they kind of, you know, had a little bit of a right to have a chokehold on it. I think what they should have realized is it would have they would have been much better off to be 80-20 than to try to be 95-5. Right. I think you're spot on. I think I think I think Nintendo totally had it right. I think that there would be no video game industry today if Nintendo didn't control the market. If they weren't, you know, monopolistic. I think you would have had another. You could have had another rush like Atari, where you know you have some good things right away, and then the whole industry goes away because people don't trust the industry. Right. Whereas Nintendo created trust with the consumer. Yeah, they. What you see is what you get. Yeah, it certainly set the standards for quality, so you didn't just have a bunch of. Uh, you know, crap games flooding the market all of a sudden. So like people like Sega who wanted it had to really want it and really had to earn it. And they did. Yeah. And I think we'll we'll get to there's a question I actually have about the letter that um, Phillips wrote to Kalinsky, but we'll 
get to that. <laughs> I think also one thing that I that I observed during our interviews, especially with Randy Peritzman, Jonah, I don't remember remember us having this conversation, but like uh, part of it too is like bedside manner. You know, doctors are giving good news and bad news all the time. But if you look at like, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I believe like the lawsuits correlate with like how much you like your doctor and like the Nintendo executives right. like Howard Lincoln and uh, Peter Main were not the warmest characters. And so I could see how, you know, talking to a third party developer, it's not coming off in the way that's like, hey, let's work together on this a little right. bit more. It feels like, hey, we're the kings here. You do what we say. Bend right. the knee sort of thing. Exactly. You know, my, fav- my favorite thing is is how, you know, developers are only allowed to release so many games within a year. So Konami was just like, yeah, well, we, we're we not we're not involved with Ultra Games. And they're like, oh, OK, you can, you can do that. That's fine. Easiest workaround ever. Yeah. Yeah. Totally unrelated, but my dream for the world is that media outlets uh, be held to that same rule that they can only do five articles per day. Like, <laughs> so they have to actually great. ration. Yes. They're like, oh, is this story worth putting out there? And they have to actually yeah. ask themselves that all the time. <laughs> right. Is that ridiculous rule that Nintendo had in place actually really good practice? <laughs> Might yeah, be. I kind of think so. <laughs> yeah. So you guys met in high school. We well, no, did. I mean, we that. weren't close in high school. No, well, we were a year apart. So we were we were like acquaintances, less yeah. friends. We both like worked on the high school newspaper. So we were always around each other. Uh, we just never were like together consistently because of the year difference, but also just like, you know, that's just how it goes. You know, people. Sure. Right. Of course. Yeah. Like, like Jonah went to a different elementary school than me. So also that's like why we didn't. We grew up in the same town, but, you know, we weren't we weren't good friends until afterwards. Oh yeah, I forgot that the elementary school yeah, divide exactly. was, was it's a huge big yeah. thing. It's like it's like even when you're to middle school, it was like you still hung out with the people that you knew from elementary school, and even yeah, it's actually funny. I never thought about it like that. But when I was in first grade and John was in second grade, we went on the that ship together. I always forget the name when we were in Cub Scouts. Yes, Cub Scouts. We went on the USS Massachusetts, and it was like this sleepover yeah. trip. Yeah, it's a big deal. Kind of skipping ahead quickly, how did you guys wind up working together? Like, what was the the beginnings of that we were on an adult softball team after college like our father's adult softball team in westchester and we bonded we started throwing our ideas blake was doing a lot of writing i was doing sort of more uh filmic stuff directing and we came together and started writing and developing and we made a small movie together that got released and and we started working together and we went from there and we sort of got more involved in the hollywood sort of side of things and sort of we had a script that got us some attention and then we sort of shifted even further when we uh, partnered with our new manager Julian Rosenberg, who's also producer on, on Console Wars, and you know, kind of went from there. Yeah, and one thing that I always really admired about Jonah, even when like when he was in college, and then it's sort you know, I think it's been part of our DNA as a partnership in filmmaking and, and writing is just he he has like a very do-it-yourself mentality. Like he likes making things. You know, like as much as we're both writers, we don't want to just write scripts that never get made like you know jonah was yeah. the one that had the idea for the documentary he was the one that really pushed us to uh you know self-produce our first small film and like you know i, I admire that and it's been helpful are you you're talking about the uh, the flying scissors yes. yes it was a mockumentary about competitive rock paper scissors kind of based on sort of our experiences <laughs> in adult softball where people take something way too seriously I, I couldn't really find much about it. Is there a way to see it? It's, you know, it's on iTunes. Oh, it it's is on, on iTunes. YouTube. Okay. It's on Amazon YouTube for still. free. It's actually, yeah, it's pretty good. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really funny. It's on YouTube through Gravitas, Jonah. Like that, like they, it's not, it's yeah. not an illegal upload. It's actually like, that's how it's released in one of the ways. Oh, it's like, yeah. So you can buy, you can definitely I saw the trailer. iTunes. You could, and I thought, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I was like, how come I haven't heard of this? I feel like this is right up my alley. Cause yeah, it's totally up our alley. <laughs> we used to. Like we got like super competitive about, I mean, it's, this sounds ridiculous now, <laughs> especially this being a, a thing that you guys made, but in high school, we kind of jokingly took, like we had a league cause we were like way into wrestling and we had a rocks, paper, scissor league and we made little belts out of felt that we put around our fingers. <laughs> it was like the <laughs> stupidest amazing. thing ever, but we like, it was so stupid, but we like kind of like played characters and took it seriously and did this whole thing. And then when I saw that you guys made this, I was like, I was like, that's not a mockumentary. That's my life. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's exactly what happened to me. It was a very early, it was a very, it's not on there anymore, one of the very early streaming films on Netflix, if I recall. Oh, that's cool. Um, which was very cool in retrospect. I, I always forget about it, but it was, I remember that very early on we were streaming on Netflix, but that was before like, you know, 
they had the math down where it's like you watch one mockumentary and then they recommend another. And yeah, for 30 right. years. But right, was, exactly. <laughs> right. But yeah, you'll see some recognizable actors in there. It's a lot of fun. You know, we made this on a shoestring budget and you'll see mockumentary fashion allows us, you know, mockumentary allows you to make something on a shoestring budget. For sure. Um, and I, I, I read somewhere that you guys worked on something, or maybe it was just one of you, called Super Agent. Yeah, it was both of us. We oh, made was that it, you guys we as well? That's pilot. such a great yeah. premise. It was, it was, that was a lot of fun. Matt Servito started in it, who you know from The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And Agent Harris. Sopranos. Agent Harris mm-hmm. from The Sopranos. A lot of fun. Uh, great premise. It didn't end up making it on a network, but, uh, you know, that's just the nature that's of That's the business. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot. I mean, it, it, it turned out great. We were very happy with it. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Man, so long ago, though, when you think about it. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> I, I imagine every one of these things leads you to the next thing, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's just an, it's a good practice to just constantly be pushing forward because eventually you'll break through. And I feel like I, like I, I feel no, no. like digging a hole and then just continue to dig them. That's how I feel yeah. most of the time. Like creatively. Deposit. Yeah. Creatively is you're correct. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> we've yeah. actually, I mean, uh, we've actually, you know, it's, it's all about building your, your relationships too in Hollywood as you develop these sort of ideas and, Sort of, I think the shift that we we really made that changed everything was, you know, we we started doing great. We were did sort of a lot of high concept comedy scripts that were great, but the market changed and wasn't making those films anymore. Right. The comedy world changed. I mean, and during that process, we kind of and this was sort of one of the console wars. Like, let's just find great stories and make. Let's not let's not try to make what's out there. Let's make stuff that's different. It's weird. It's different, and just find these stories that are unique to sort of our point of view and, and roll with them. And that's sort of been our mantra ever since. And that's sort of what we had. Set. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that, and, and I think I heard this someplace that, um, that Blake, you walked into a Barnes and Noble and tried to find a book on gaming history and they like laughed you out of the place. Is, is <laughs> that true? a true story? Yes. I, yeah, I can imagine that being really good inspiration <laughs> to be uh, like, yeah. well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to make a goddamn series about this then. <laughs> Blake came to me. He's like, Hey, I, have this, I, I found this story. I don't know if it's real or what it is. And he kept investigating it. And he was like, you know what, this could be a book. And I was like, it could be a doc too. And <laughs> that's then we were great. Like, it could be like the social network. Right. And then we we're like, you know what, if one of these hits, that's great. Amazing. Let's just, let's just try to do all three and maybe we'll get one to hit. And obviously sort of, they've all kind of come to fruition. Um, and that, that's, that's amazing. Cause they are, we're telling these stories in different ways. Like the book, it lets you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the story of the people. And the doc lets you get involved with these people on a personal level. And, and also kind of see the visuals behind all this. And of course, the narrative series will allow us to dive even deeper uh, into the characters. Can you guys talk a bit about the series? Because there, uh, we took a look around. There's not a tremendous amount out about what we have to expect for that. Yeah, other than it's still coming. Yeah, well, right now we have an amazing script from Mike Rosolio um, and for the pilot that we're all super excited about. Um, we're figuring out what to do with the series. Obviously, Viacom merged with CBS and mm-hmm. COVID happened. So right. there's been a lot of delays on that part, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Hopefully, we'll have some new news in the next uh, couple months and we'll, uh, we'll be able to tell the story in the third way. <laughs> <laughs> so so right. this is going to be it's going to be a scripted show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I thought it was more, you know, pieces of documentary. Oh, that's great. No, it's, cool. it's like Jonas oh, said, no. like, kind of like the social network of video games is how we always oh, thought that's of it. Great. We're sort of like Moneyball after right, that, cool. that became a movie. Right. <laughs> right. And part of the reason we, well, funny you say that, part of the reason sort of this became, this was delayed so much is we initially sold the rights uh, to, to make this as a film at Sony Pictures with Seth Rogen, of course, producing, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, and then Scott Rudin, who was the producer on the social network and Moneyball and social networks at Sony. And that was originally the plan. But what happened is everybody kind of looked at the story and said, you know what? We have so many dynamic characters. How do you tell a Sega and Nintendo story and a Sega of Japan story in just an hour and a half? I want a whole thing just about Sega Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys, every one of those, I was like, what's going on with these guys? It seems like the empire, like like in Star Wars. I'm like, what's going on over there? One of the, I don't know if this was not, not quite in the latest outline, but at one point I remember Mike Rosolio uh, had this idea in a very early stage to do an entire episode in Japanese, like a thriller oh, that's in great. Japanese. That's in amazing. And, and I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. How that's cool awesome. is this? It's amazing. 
That's awesome. Yeah, COVID certainly changed, obviously, the nature of getting things done in Hollywood. I was watch- I was just reading this amazing story where um, so all the soap operas are back, but they have to make out with mannequins because they can't kiss. So (laughs) if you look it up, there's like all these pictures of like, you can totally tell it's a mannequin from behind. And then like you see the actor face on making out with (laughs) these mannequins. What's more surprising is the number of people who care. Zero. My my mom will still watch General Hospital all day. Yep. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Nope. And she still so, won't watch Quibi. Anyway. Um, yeah. No, yeah. Oh, you. Oh, right. yeah. Those quick bites. Every, everyone was looking. You know, no one could pay attention to a series for more than 20 minutes these days. <laughs> I'm thinking about buying Quibi, actually. You're thinking about buying it? Yeah, I got about 500 bucks in my pocket. So, guys, when you were kids, would, do you, would you say that either of you kind of chose a side where you Sega or Nintendo kids? I mean, I was a Nintendo kid until the Saturn, which was a huge yeah. mistake, of course. But I right. think it was chosen for me. Uh, I was always a few, I was always a year or two behind everybody else in game systems. And right. my parents got me a Nintendo, and I loved the Nintendo games. I would yeah. play Sega sometimes with friends, but the Nintendo games actually resonated as much as I love the Sega story. Resonated more with me. Sonic was sure. was not as easy to play for me as a Mario game, or right. I agree. sort of. And I liked some some of the extensions, like world class track and field, and you know, I loved California games. Yeah, I loved yeah, yeah. very random. Hitting the seagull with the hacky sack. Yeah. Like I, oh man, I hit that seagull thousands, millions of times in my life. Yeah. Um, but so sort of those games sort of got me when I was younger. Uh, Blake sort of um, was in both camps, I believe. Well, I mean, in terms of the 16 bit battle, I was totally Team Sega, but I, I, I had an NES also that I loved and still play. Um, but yeah, because there was no backward compatibility, my parents wouldn't let us get a Super Nintendo, so we ended up getting mm. a uh, Sega Genesis, and it was probably also the right decision, just because most of what we played and what I still play is like sports games, so Sega was sure. better for that. They were better, yeah. What do you think the most shocking thing was when you were doing the research for either the book or the documentary? There had to be one thing that you were like, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a lot of things that... Uh, Part of what made this a fun project to work on is just how surprised, you know, how much stuff we learn all the time. But, uh, you know, it's probably what I alluded to earlier, just that, you know, how, how Sega could have had uh, some version of a partnership with Sony, like the Sega PlayStation, yeah. and, you know, work with Silicon Graphics for something like the Nintendo 64. Sure. Yeah, and that reflects on the relationship with Japan, which is, you know, we, you know, it's called console wars because it's not just about the battle between Sega and Nintendo. It's about the battle between Sega of Japan uh, and Sega of America sure. as well, which I think yeah, that whole storyline is is something people don't really know about. You don't really know that the Genesis version in Japan wasn't successful. All these little things that sort of added up to that relationship are fascinating and, mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, hasn't been out there. You do say it, but without really saying it, Saturn is what put kind of the nail in the coffin for Sega. And again, that was completely because of the relationship between Sega Japan, Sega America, right? Yep, yep. And the thing that we never kind of get the chance to discuss with you guys in, in Console Wars, it ends right before it, is the Dreamcast. What is your both of your opinion of the Dreamcast? Because it almost seems like the Hail Mary that could have made it. And they were just talking about a Dreamcast Mini, I heard mm-hmm. in the news, that they're, that's going to be the next Mini console. So it's well, we back on people's it. minds. I mean, yeah. it's one of my all-time favorite consoles. We both yeah, love too. the Dreamcast. And I think the fact, of you know, the film doesn't actually really get into that era, of course. But I feel like you can understand the demise of Sega just because of that SOA, SOJ mm-hmm. civil war. Because the Dreamcast was actually like very successful. And still, that wasn't enough because there it was right. too costly. It was... Uh, price Such badly. A great it was yeah. So like, I mean, you had the the PlayStation Two at the same time, which was you know blew everyone out of the water. And that could play DVDs, right? And Dreamcast exactly. couldn't. That yeah. was kind of like the big yep. every. If you're going to get, you know, why buy two systems when you can buy one? Is there anything um, kind of for question for you both in different spheres? Is Blake? Is there anything you had to cut from the book that you uh, kind of maybe wish you hadn't, or anything you guys had to cut from the documentary that you just didn't have time for? Uh, I mean, definitely the documentary, you know, a 90 yeah. minute version of the story versus a 500 plus page version of the sure. story. But even with the book, there was a lot of things that yeah, I would I have assume. loved to get in there. Sure. Uh, like a lot of things. It's just that, you know, as with the documentary, though, in a very different way, we always wanted to service, you know, the central story. And as much as there was cool stuff like, you know, the origins of Tetris and Nintendo's ability to get it out from behind the Iron Curtain or 
yeah. you know, development of Sonic 3 with lock-on technology and working with Michael oh, Jackson yeah, we and love all that, that stuff, yeah, yeah. which which is more in the book. But, like, you know, we're, we're always trying to make Nintendo buying the Mariners. Yeah, exactly. It was a real battle. We really want that in the dock. Nintendo buying the Mariners, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, 32X, we had versions where we made a much bigger deal about 32X. Yeah, that's a big, the end, that it, big it, mistake, it, isn't it? We yeah we so we kind of bump up you know we didn't want to give it it's kind of a similar beat to what what they did with Saturn so it felt like it felt like too soon when you, you but so there was at the same time though this like kind of ter- technology barrage like mm-hmm. we called it or George Harrison called it throwing stuff against the wall to see what would stick so we you it, we had to kind of reduce the 32x story to that because you know the truth is yes obviously the hardcore gamers want to hear every piece of information possible but for the ordinary viewer like if you mm-hmm. throw too much information at them. You know, you, you know, you're going to lose them uh, with all the technical jargon, and so that, that's why it was important for us to keep it focused on these characters and what they were doing, and sort of the big moments. We hit these big moments where we felt like, like Sonic Two, the first first global launch. You have, you know, all the CES shows and the E3 shows, which are critical. It was all building to those moments, you know, rather than sort of giving information. Sure. For the documentary, focusing on those amazing characters that you guys were able to, you know, interview is definitely the right way to go. What are your thoughts on the 32X now that you have like a chance to talk about them? <laughs> Not it was good. A similar, I mean, it was a mistake. Yeah. It was a mistake. I mean, yeah. it's the same. It was the same as the Saturn. It was like the whole thing was in the old version. I think it was Tom said, okay, we're going to give you this add-on device. Right. And don't worry. We're going to provide games for it. You know, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got this. And they didn't provide stuff right away. And, and and that was, the truth is it all comes down to the software you provide. You know, right. Sonic and Mario selling these things, not the idea of a, a better system that potentially doesn't have any, you know, games to play, you know? Right. Blake, you... um. You speak so often in your book in other people's voices and kind of as writers ourselves, it seems super daunting. How do you, how do you go about getting the confidence to kind of speak as somebody else? Oh, it's not confidence. It's arrogance. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's gotta, it, well, it's gotta be a little bit of arrogance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, I like, uh, okay. So part of it I think is, just the idea coming, especially as Jonah and I had talked about, like from a comedy writing, a script writing background, a fiction writing background is like, there's something different about writing nonfiction in that you're at least a nonfiction based on living characters who you have access to where sure. you feel a sense of responsibility to them. So mm-hmm. I think that is helpful in terms of creating deadlines. Like, you know, like you're asking these people for their time and for their memories and, you know, you, you don't want to just, uh, dash and dine with that so right um i think that uh feeling responsibility to get it right to them helps force you to raise your bar and force you to you know try to take on these challenges with different voices that right will help the story um and then having that access is incredibly important like you know i don't i, I wouldn't have i would not have written as much dialogue in the book if i didn't have the people that you know the recreated dialogue was coming from to review it and and give me notes and help me get it right or at least get it in like the right spirit of how those conversations went um and that's why you see a lot less dialogue from the people at nintendo because even though (laughs) we did get those interviews it wasn't the sort of like uh you know text message follow-up by email relationship that Mm -hmm. that i had with a lot of the sega people where i felt like i could have them review the stuff um and, yeah, and it's sure amazing. Right. It's amazing. The the every single person from Sega was just so chatty and kind of warm and excited to be a part of the documentary. And Nintendo, you just could tell like it was. It must have been tough to get those interviews and to even get them to speak when you got them. It's totally it was, true. Nintendo was, it, yeah, it was one hundred percent true. But at the same time, I will tell you this: Nintendo was was better than I thought. Obviously, it took a lot yes. more to kind of get them to participate. But right. like. It's not like they were hiding the fact who they were. They were telling you, and obviously we structured in a way so we reveal why why they were like this later on. But like they were very honest about sort of the way they went about business, and and you know even you know even when and and that's I think that's all you can ask. You know they want this. This was twenty five years ago, so you know it's not like this is going to change anything today. They just want to put it's like a time capsule of sort of what happened and and why they did these things. And in retrospect, these both companies like you know hit hit you know it was a, a rocket ship of success so people were excited to talk about it 
there isn't a single person in the film that I don't get along with really well and have a high opinion of. And I'm sure it's the same with Jonah. Um, but, but there is a difference of personality. I mean, ultimately, Sega's strategy for success, or at least the one we highlight in the film, is marketing. And marketing is storytelling. So it's not yeah. surprising that like so many of the Sega people are just more gregarious and like, you know, putting these incidents into like a larger narrative and helping. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. The Howard the Howard Phillips uh interview seemed real fun. They were all fun to be honest. But yeah, he he yeah. he's much more lighthearted. Also, uh, Randy Peretzman was like the most Sega like I feel like of the people. He was the original salesman at Nintendo. Right, right. Um he was he was pretty uh easygoing. Um yeah. He was he was incredibly open too. Randy Peretzman told us everything and anything and and no holds bar and you know, it 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 you kind of, he's sort of a very, a guy with a lot of heart who was starting as a company that, you know, wasn't really anything at the time and it was risky. And he right. sort of it was really interesting to hear his story. And he's a good example too of in terms of like what got cut that we would have liked to be in there, but it, we felt like it would have dragged is like, you know, we'd always heard that there had been this video game crash and that it was so hard for Nintendo to resurrect the market, which, but you know, which I think we, it's definitely true. And we both believe it's true, but like, you know, knowing how the story ends and knowing how successful and how good super Mario brothers, legend of Zelda and all those games were, it's sometimes it's a little hard to believe that like, Oh, that, you know, people wouldn't have bought that. But 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 talking to Randy, he was literally going into these stores like the Wiz and Crazy Eddie's and walking around with a case trying to sell them the Nintendo in 1985. And they had no interest in video games. It wasn't even a matter of whether it was good or not. They just wanted nothing to do with it. So like hearing it from his point of view and, have, and you know sort of verifying it and seeing what that struggle was like was really helpful to us. That would have been a, I mean, that would be, you know, kind of a, a really gripping kind of thrilling scene if you did the Nintendo documentary, you know, to start out right. their story with it. But yeah, you're right. I think, you know, it, it, it telegraphs to them being so successful today that it's almost tough to believe. There was a lot of moments, you know, so you mentioned Howard Phillips, you know, he left the company, you know, rather early on in, in 1991 and, and sort of it really had to do with, there was a really interesting storyline that we kind of couldn't get into the doc, but Sort of Howard left, I feel like he wanted to be more involved with game development and, and Nintendo's controlling ways. They they kind of were just, you know, using him as a bit of a front man right. uh, for the American audiences. And I think that that warned him. And, and you know, it even got to the point where he 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 was planning on meeting with Sega because a typical Sega move would be to try to swipe, you know, away Nintendo's right. guy. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, he, Howard Phillips just couldn't couldn't get himself to the meeting he just couldn't knew he couldn't do it he knew it wasn't right he didn't but sort of that seems, whole story it seems right for him one. doesn't it yeah yeah no i think that you know he is you know in the end that would have that would have been that wouldn't have been right for sega or nintendo having howard phillips as a sega person yeah, in my I mind think so but you're saying that there was uh, an attempt to take him he, yeah. he met he ended up meeting with shinobu Get um, out of here. Wow, that's cute. He did. And that's in the book. And actually, that's like one of the I don't remember few that. things yeah. that I did is uh, <laughs> that is incorrect in the book is that Tom, he he, he told me Tom was not actually at that meeting, um, even though I Tom had remembered being there. But yeah, he ended up meeting with Shinobu and maybe or maybe not Tom, though, uh, seemingly not Tom. And and yeah. was pretty and was actually like it wasn't like at that point he was thinking of like planning to sign. But then in that last meeting, right. he had cold feet for the reasons kind of like Jonah mentioned, like it just didn't seem right. And maybe he also felt like he was being exploited a little bit. Right. Um, but yeah, that, we always liked that idea of like that really close, the close call. Right, it's like the uh, it's like the Verizon guy switcheroo, right? The can you hear me now? That dude? actually makes oh, me yeah. so angry, though. Me too. <laughs> I'm so I think, angry. Yeah. I think people should be mad, mad about that. It should. She's they like, should why be do mad you about care that. So much. I'm like, I care so much. This is like, this is unacceptable. Yeah, so, you can't be you can't be the face of somebody's company and then use the same line in a different way. It's just it's terrible. I'm with you. Yeah, it's disgusting. Like, like as much as Howard Phillips was the mascot, he actually like did like a lot of important work for Nintendo of America, and I'm sure he would have done similarly important work for Sega. But like sure. the Verizon guy, I don't, I don't have that much respect for him. I don't think he's <laughs> right. like, like, I don't think him being cast was like because he was so much better than the rest of the exactly. guys. Yeah, it's not so, like, his work. I feel like it's like a yeah, it's biting like the hand like that feeds you. Yeah. Yeah, he's exactly. an actor. He's not an expert in phones. He's not saying Verizon yeah. is it for that. He's like, wait, right. I switched the other side because they're the best. It's like they pay me money to yeah. exploit the fact that I work. So for I have Verizon. a real problem <laughs> with that. 
lack Good. of well, I'm glad, I'm no glad that somebody else does because literally I, my smile. wife has said the same thing. Yeah, that, that smug, that, that's the other thing too. I don't like him any, I don't like him to begin with, but my wife said the same thing to me. Why do you get so angry when this commercial comes on? I'm like, well, how he's got a not? punchable face. He's got a yeah. punchable face now. That's why. Because <laughs> he switched sides and now nobody likes him anymore. And he got a facelift. I know, it's a shame. What do you guys think about Nintendo's strategy today? It really does kind of seem to be very similar. No, I mean, I think they're still focused on their same thing. You know, throughout the, the course of our film, you know, there are moments where they stray from their core core values and core goals, you know, with the right. Play Aloud campaign mm-hmm. or right, right, right. when they allow Blood and Mortal Kombat. Right. But, you know, when you talk about the console wars of today, you think of PlayStation and Xbox, right. which are sort of competing. And then Nintendo is still its, its iconic brand on the side doing the same thing it's always done and not getting involved in these other battles. I feel like at one point they weren't even really involved. They didn't think much of Sega. They didn't even acknowledge Sega um, until sort of, you know, they really sort of started taking a big piece of the market. Yeah, I don't even know if console wars, like, you know, another set of console wars can exist today just because the, it's so toxic. Uh, like, I, I don't know that we can ever see it. Like, uh, like the other day, Microsoft made fun of Sony's, like, like it was tough for them to like, put their like ver- change from vertical to horizontal and Xbox point like we're like oh you just turn ours this way but and they deleted the tweet yeah I don't know why I guess people Losers. thought it was yeah it, it just it, it, it felt <laughs> oh, then they also felt- tweeted make love not console wars and they're always publicly saying like oh Sony and Nintendo best right. friends we love right. them yeah, but that it, it's it, it's all this is so weird. It's like it's it's okay to like you know like rib your opponent a little bit, right? But Nintendo is obviously cozied up to Microsoft. They probably still harbor a little bit of resentment from Sony with uh, the Nintendo PlayStation. But you know, Microsoft and Nintendo have quite a nice little relationship right now, with sharing IPs, and um, it's been nice as a Nintendo fan to be able to play some stuff that you can't on any other system but Xbox, like uh, Cuphead and um, having Minecraft characters and Smash now. Yeah. It's been a cool, cool yeah. thing, to, cool thing to see. Yeah, and I think that's something that, like, uh, in terms of your previous question of like how Nintendo's current strategy and how similar it is to back in the '80s and '90s, uh, you know, philosophically, I think they're pretty similar. Uh, it's you know, quality over quantity, very controlling. Even when they did stuff for the iPhone, like it's you know, they're not just giving away their characters and having other people do it for them. Like you know, they they, they could they could sell out, but they don't, and they still try to do everything through their own hardware. But but one change that I've noticed because uh, you know I I've been asked. I was asked this question a lot back in 2014 when the book came out and I felt like I wish Nintendo would embrace their past a little bit more. And they had a, you know, a mentality that I would describe as like, you know, like a Bill Belichick, like on to Cincinnati, like we're, you know, like, yeah, the past is great, but we're, we're here to like talk about the Nintendo, like the Wii U. And, uh, but like, (laughs) like, I, I think they've, they've considerably changed and started to embrace that more, whether it's the, you know, the the subscription service for the NES or the Super mm-hmm. Nintendo or um, even just like Mario 35 that they just created or the mini consoles like mm-hmm. they 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 did what they did what I would have wanted, where it's not in replacement for the future by focusing on the past, but it's just a compliment yeah. and to acknowledge that so many of us grew up with it and love it. Yeah. Right. They still have to do it their way, though, right? Because it's a timed exclusive. You can only play Mario 35 <laughs> yeah. for like until the winter. And then they're like, we're taking it away. It's just like when yeah, Disney used to do that point. BS when they're like, we're opening the oh, vault. The vault? And- <laughs> yeah. Yep. The vault is open. Aladdin's available for six weeks. Yeah. And I used to be like, Mom, we got to get to the video store. We can-, we can only buy Cinderella for two more weeks. It's Man, ridiculous. It's like $120 for a VHS. It would, yeah, it would totally. be insane. What do you think about that? Era? Right. Yeah. But you know, you know, N- Nintendo's fans are also pretty fickle in a sense where it's like they clamored for, you know, these remakes of the, the three, the, the three Mario 3D games that they released, uh, 64 Sunshine and Mario Galaxy. Yet if Nintendo spends all this time, you know, developing and coming up with a new IP, they're like, yeah, all right, whatever. We want Mario again. You know, we want this old game that we've played a hundred times, you know, on this system as well. But I mean, even when they do their games for this, you know, the Mario game and the Zelda game for the Switch, I think are pretty bold, uh, ambitious attempts. Like, you know, they could just do sure. much, like a very easy platformer, like, hey, you like Mario, you're going to like this. It's not going to be bad. But but like, I do admire that they try to do different things. These two, tr- especially yeah. this with the Switch, the Odyssey, Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild, they really were like super departures from kind of. Yeah, like I, I don't remember clamoring for uh, Mario to like have a hat be a very pivotal part of the storyline yeah, and game. Yeah. 
like, you know, you you say that, but then you turn into a dinosaur with a mustache, and you're like, all right, well, this is great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that game. Yeah, I know it's a it's the best sandbox I think anyone's ever created. It's a ton of fun. And Breath of the Wild, you know, it it certainly has its detractors, but I think it's an incredible version of Zelda and um, a really cool way to experience it again, especially like with us, our generation that have been playing Zelda since the first iteration. It felt the most like that first one. Remember when you used to like find something and be like, what the hell is that? (laughs) Like talk to your friend about it on the playground. Like I'd have to like text Mike and be like, did you figure out how to get behind this door? Like what, you know, like (laughs) it felt like there was like lots of like, there was like lots of mystery again, rather than like Skyward Sword or like the games before it, where you're like, all right, well, this is the rails that I'm on. I'm just essentially on a roller coaster and they're making it look like it's open world. Like I'm doing everything that, you know, I'm just told to do for the whole game. I was going to say, and to that point, like the other Zelda game that they've released is, uh, you know, the, the 3D remake of Link's Awakening, which I think is like one of the most beautiful games ever made. So they're, they're like yeah. finding ways to do both. And 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 like, you know, again, that they I think they they would have been able to sell a, a switch version of that game that was you know not that different from what they had sure. back then. But they like really made a beautiful. Yeah, the art direction is amazing, right? Yeah. It looks like a living yeah. diorama. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I always think about with Nintendo, um, the old, uh, I think, I think it was a Henry Ford quote, like about like, if you ask people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Oh yeah. That's a really you know? good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like Nintendo, Nintendo, Nintendo's always ahead of us. It's like, Oh, give we want a Mario game and we want this too. But they're like, you don't even know what you want. All right. Except, except want, for the 3D. You know, <laughs> Miyamoto's been working in his garden. You guys want Pikmin. I'm like, I don't want Pikmin. And then I play Pikmin. I'm like, all right, where's the next Pikmin? Yeah. One of my favorite things I remember reading about Miyamoto is like, at one point, they said, you need to stop talking about your hobbies because people are going to just start guessing what the next thing is going to be. <laughs> right? It's like if you're exactly. into crossword puzzles, shut up about it. <laughs> right? um, so, Blake, in, um, in the history of the future, you obviously talk about VR and I kind of just want to briefly touch on it. But I think it's pretty clear that one of the next kind of frontiers of console wars is probably going to be that space. No, the VR space. Do you see it that way? <laughs> I certainly bet the farm on that. No, I certainly thought so. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's like interesting because I feel like like so at now of, anyway, like right yeah. now, like is, I feel like it's different than even six months ago. Yeah, I mean, like it was always a long term play. And that was something I admired about Oculus. The focus of yeah. the book was that they were not like as much as Facebook might have wanted it to be a quick success they at least have given the patience and the Oculus employees like felt like, all right, you know, it's going to take a long time to actually um, become more mainstream or become, you know, reach like a critical mass with gaming. Uh, But like Nintendo is such an interesting role in this because uh, like if I had the choice of going anywhere in VR, you know, like this idea of like, Oh, you can put on a headset, you can go to Paris. Like one of the places I'd want to go most is just like hang out in the mushroom kingdom. And sure. Of course. Like that's, you know, that's IP. And so no matter how hard Oculus or Valve or HTC tries, like they don't own that. Um, Right. And Nintendo right now is only giving you an option with cardboard and saran wrap. So (laughs) exactly. If you got scotch tape and a piece of cardboard, I got good news for you. Exactly. Yeah. And but actually, but they do have that Mario Kart uh, VR game. I think it's. It oh, yeah. Mario Kart Live. Or, yeah. So like, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'm still very bullish on VR and I still okay. think that Nintendo, you know, Nintendo deciding to jump in is going to play a key role, at least in the gaming space with that, just because that, you know, like, uh, yeah. They, they like like we're talking about it's like they you know you want something new you, you want not a horse but you also want something that kind of looks like a horse so that you can like understand right. it and Nintendo <laughs> right, has exactly. like this IP that's like familiar but then they're doing interesting things like Breath of the Wild with it or Mario Odyssey sure. and you're like all right I'll, I'll go along with this because it's a Mario game or a Zelda game and I, I trust that it'll be right. fun yeah. yeah, I think the more VR, the the more competent VR consoles um, backed by companies are out there, obviously, the quicker and better it's going to get. Because I think the big thrust of the Console Wars documentary is that the Console Wars actually created better companies for both companies, right? 100%. 100%. The, uh, we always say that it's the consumer who won because these totally. companies were challenging each other to make something bigger and better. And yes, you know, and they continue to. And I think that, you know, while they're trying to create a better offering for everybody, you know, that's that's how you do it. And and also, like, I think that John and I just have a tendency being, you know, creators, and I'm sure you guys as well, like being creators ourselves, Mm -hmm. like I tend to uh, see things from the developer perspective. And like, they're the other huge winners of the console wars. Like people, 
complain about exclusives, but you know, that's like funding a lot of these companies right. to make games. And you, those games would not exist if it was just available on our platforms and there was no premium paid in advance. So like, yep. I understand it's frustrating, especially in the console space, much more than like the f- television premium, you know, exclusives, but like yeah. it still is uh, like the consumers, I believe definitely win in the end, the developers certainly wins more money spent on content. So, you know, I'm a big, big fan of the concept of competition. Right. Yeah, I mean, this this console war was special to us, though, is that, you know, it wasn't the first console war. I guess Atari had its own war, but it was the war that kind of changed the video game industry forever. And, it was, you know, I think that that's what drew us to it. It's, you know, with Sony and Microsoft today, these are huge corporations doing battle. You know, we say that if, you know, Sega had not been successful in the United States, I mean, the company would have would have would 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 be nothing. You know what I mean? He's stuck in arcades for the rest of its company. Right. Exactly. And who knows, who knows how long that would last, you know, how the home video market affected the arcades and that business. And, you know, I think that it was more life and death back then, whereas now it's these huge corporations going up against each other. And worst case, you know, they don't sell as much, but they're still, you know, you know, they're still synergizing with the rest of their company and making everybody money. (laughs) Right. Where do you guys see that, like the spirit of set, like the scrappy spirit of Sega today? Is that around today? Is that even a thing that's in the game industry today? I mean, we just talked about VR. Is it there? Is it in, is it in small indie houses? Like where, where do you think that, that kind of that line through exists or does it not at all? No, definitely. Like, I mean, I, I certainly saw that in Oculus. That was what attracted me to the story, especially, you know, Palmer Lucky, like, says what he thinks. Right. Yeah. And, right. Uh, right. So, right. You know, and I, and like, in an authentic way that's not manufactured, and most people appreciate that. But, like, you know, it, it's a world where Microsoft is going to delete a tweet because it's, like, allegedly mean, even though it's something <laughs> right. that they, almost everyone there probably feels. Um, right. Right. And, and I think that, and I do think you're right. It's like the indie gaming outlets like i you know if I, if I were to be a fly on the wall at any gaming story for this year it probably would have been with fall guys I, I, don't, I don't know if it's an interesting story but just like that's a what an interesting occurrence that during this pandemic like a smallish right. indie game would be like the one that captured the hearts yeah. and minds of so many people yeah did yeah. you see the uh, living nightmare that is sonic the hedgehog for fall guys that was released today no <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, you have to look it up when we're done. It's really, it's really, it looks like a Homer Simpson and Sonic the Hedgehog had a baby. Yeah, it's a Sonic costume. Oh my God. Yeah, it's really funny, but it's, you know, cool that he's there. Yeah. Guys, I can't believe we've gotten this far without talking about the real star of the documentary, The Comfort Inn. <laughs> <Yeah>. True. <laughs> we need to talk I about mean, The Comfort Inn. I mean, we that, need what to a great way to what a great way. key financier of the documentary. No, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did, um, yeah, Reebok pumps in the Comfort Inn. Did you, um, I mean, what a great, when you guys shot that, were you like, oh my God, this is exactly what we need to start with. This genuinely charismatic dude who lives in the Comfort Inn. You know, we struggled a lot with to start with what to start, but I think that, you know, it kept coming back to Shinobu because we, Shinobu was there before Tom right. and could kind of take us into that story. And just his, he's such an authentic, you know, lovely human being who nice sort dude. of everybody can relate to, Yeah, you know, he, he was just trying to, you know, raise his family and be successful in America. And, you know, he, there was also this sort of connection with Japan and, you know, it was just fascinating. He was one of our, he was one of those characters that stood out to us. Had so much heart. Absolute character for um, sure. And like thematically, one thing we, like we always, just to be clear, he's still there. Yes, he, he doesn't well, live there every day of the week, but he's still. I call it his pied a terre. Yeah, that's pied-a-terre. Pied-a-terre. <laughs> right. Did yeah. did did you guys get to talk to like the staff? Like, what's his reputation there? They love him. He's they do. Hero. They love him. He's oh, like, he is. He's like a bit. Yeah, he's yeah, such a nice guy. He's lived there forever. Yeah. Well, it was smart. He was traveling so much. He was in Japan, and obviously his family was still living in Texas. He didn't want to move them because who knows what was going to happen at Sega? And he found this place sure. seven minutes from the airport that was nice smart. and comfortable and. You know, I'm a creature of habit too. Once you find something you like, you stick with it. Right. And, you know, as he has still has to, tra- you know, travel back and forth, uh, um, you know, he, he just was happy there and he's still there and we filmed him there. Um, we even had more with him there that we just didn't end up using just because of time constraints, you know, where we're trying to really push the story forward. We actually, it was, it was pretty hard to kind of get the comfort in, in there originally because you're talking about the origins of Sega, but also the comfort in, and that's really where the animation came in and helped us like kind sure. of like get inside that world so that like, you can see Tom there, you can see Shinobu there, you can see Paul there when it's just, you know, them talking to the camera about it. It's not as dynamic. Right. Um, yeah. But once so, we were able spe- to animate it. Speaking, 
Speaking of the animation, I know exactly uh, what you're going to say. Yep. Yeah, I know. You know, I know. You know what I'm going to say because both of us laughed hysterically, and it was our favorite scene when um, I think it's uh, uh, Nakayama finds Kalinsky on the beach, and then and then they're on, then they're on the plane on the way back, and and Kalinsky's still in his He's bathing still in suit. The bathing suit, it's so funny. Well, first of all, he was in a bathing suit on the plane and had to take it to Japan. That is truthful. Get out of here. Wait, no, that's not true. No, no, just kidding. That's the most no, that's the thing I've ever heard. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I'll believe anything at this point. We're talking about a guy who lives in a comfort inn. If Kalinsky felt like he needed to go, he needed to go. That was a great example, too, of Joan and I didn't even direct the great animation team at Mindbomb to do that. That was, you know, their idea that they brought to us. So it's really funny. Just one yeah. of the many examples we, of we, things that they created beyond what we imagined and was obviously right. totally in line with it's the brilliant. story. Yeah. It was hysterical. Yeah, we storyboarded it. They po- they would send us stuff. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Tom didn't have a shirt on. And we were like, this is brilliant. You, are, you crushed <laughs> so it. Funny. You know, yeah. it's so funny. Moments it, it like that so where it was really hard with the animation to kind of keep keep it light in the lighter scenes and heavier in the heavier scenes without getting, you know, it was a very, it was a tough line to cross. Like you think about the scene where the four point plan is and, you know, we couldn't really do eight, 16 minutes stuff there, 16 bit stuff. So we had to kind of shift more to doing sort of the cut scene style. So it could be more dramatic, but also fun. Like when Nakayama kicks the chair and, and that was a really tough balance for us. But you know, the, the perfect example of the fun scene is that Hawaii scene where we can just go ham with what we had. Right, exactly. Uh, because it was so ridiculous. It was, it's so ridiculous. This guy showed up in Hawaii. He's like, you know what? I'm going to track this guy down. And like, was he in a suit? Yes. He was yeah, in a suit he on was. the beach. Yeah, he like was. I think that we were not actually... sure if he was, but definitely like oh, in real life, I got you. Yeah, well now yeah, he yeah. is yeah, forever yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, exactly. because because you guys essentially like... this is the document everyone will reference the both the documentary and the book. So he's in a suit forever, and he also wrote a rode the plane in a bathing suit. Kolinsky rode the plane in the bathing suit forever. <laughs> these are facts um, now. Yeah, these are facts now. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We we were joking back and forth about like uh, it must be so cool. Kolinsky must be the best and also i just had my mind exploded when i realized the man basically invented my childhood i'm like i took the flintstone vitamins i played with he-man stuff and then uh and then i bought a sega and i'm like it's this guy there's one guy there's one guy that basically you know uh kind of laid out my childhood for me but uh, just the fact that anyone would like I don't know, call his office and they're like, no, nah, Tom's on vacation. They're like, I oh, don't worry. We'll find him. And they just fly to Hawaii. And they were like, yeah, there he is. <laughs> like, what, is there anything that you guys wish someone would just pop in and grab you for? I mean, I, I know you guys are involved in all, all kinds of exciting things. Um, we don't have to get into anything that you're not, you, you know, you can't disclose. You're not allowed to talk about because it's early, but any dream projects, anything that you wish someone would just crash your beach vacation and be like, we need you. You got to come do this. Anything? People approaching me about anything is horrifying to me, whether it's on my vacation or just like in general. <laughs> I mean, Joan and I have uh, so, a so, 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 hey, Blake, would you like to do this podcast? The extrovert. <laughs> yeah. gets you very I mean, nervous. <laughs> I said, I said the same thing. I, I forgot what what Todd said, and we could, we'll have to go back and check what, what Todd said. But what I, oh, said, I said it was uh, you asking me if I read the runner show. Oh right, it would be me crashing your vacation, uh, making me look like a real a, a real jerk. But mine was someone stands over me, and I'm like, "This is it!" And they're just like, "Put a shirt on, fatty." <laughs> and then they just keep moving, they just keep moving on down the beach. And I'm like, "Ah, oh, I thought that was my big Kalinsky moment." No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, no, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. We typically our projects too. We kind of self develop and sort of have this sort of entrepreneurial way of you know writing, directing, and producing. So. It's, you know, we're just starting to sort of meet with people about doing other people's projects, but, you know, the stuff we like to work on is stuff we originate typically, so. Well, I'll give you one um, example. I'm hard. writing a book about Larry David, and I feel like he'd have a very similar reaction to that question of just like <laughs> not wanting people no, around. Leave me alone. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Don't bother me. Yeah, we right. want it. If I, saw, want... so if I saw someone walking up, I'd be like, well, now I got to move down the beach. This is yeah, awful. Yeah, they're so obviously going to be asking person. me to leave. Right. I got to move my umbrella. Mm-hmm. This is a I whole mean, thing now. I know I don't belong here. They're just here to tell me that. Um, we wanted to just briefly touch on it obviously uh, is the Michael Jordan of nothing the title of the book or is it just something that's kind of been around your announcements oh yeah the the title of the book uh, is tentatively uh, the emperor of nothing oh that's great (laughs) put that together for some video of of old clips of Larry Um, has Larry uh, brought you to any civil war battlefields yet 
Not yet. No, oh, we're getting there. All right. Then that's, that's when you got married yeah. last week. Oh, did he really? Congratulations, Larry David. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you working with him directly on it? Um, are you going to be spending uh, yeah. a lot of time with him? Yeah. I have been speaking to him uh, very regularly over the past okay. few months. Very cool. Any scoops you can give us? Anything to look forward to in this book? Just that he's the coolest guy in the world. Yeah, it's exactly what we expect, isn't it? Yeah, I can't wait to check that out. That's super exciting. Thank you. Do you have any sort of a released uh, schedule for that? Oh, uh, no. Too early to say. But, cool. Um, no worries. Yeah. You know, just, just, I, I, I wasn't sure how uh, when the time's right. how much I'd be able to talk to Larry. So it's definitely sure. going to be the best version of the book. That's so great. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. So, guys, blast processing, Reebok pumps. What is your favorite BS marketing push of all time? Did one of those <laughs> land, land there up top? Is any oh, is anything worked on you? Good. Oh, Reebok pumps. Us got too. Me. Yeah, oh, those those kid, definitely I was Shaq, on us. Yeah, Shaq Reebok pumps. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I I I was fully. I remember so vividly getting the Reebok pumps uh-huh. and how important it was in my life. Yep. Those are the most like those are the most important. You know, we were all sneaker kids, I'm sure. And yep. those are the most important sneakers I ever owned. Those were yeah. also, they were very expensive. I mean, those are, for most people, those are one of those things that you needed to push your parents for. They weren't, you know, walking in buying you $100 shoes in the 90s. Right. You know, I mean, here's, just because. Here's how, here's how naive I was. I bought them and I was like, this is it, Mike. This yep. is going to change your life. I was like, yep. these shoes are going to provide <laughs> the support. Star. I, I was like, you're going to be better in gym. You're going to be better at basketball. You're going to be better. And then I watched the documentary and the guy's like, yeah, they pretty much just made your feet hot. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, God, I, what yeah. a heart. Bro- My heart duped. broke into a million pieces. <laughs> Pivoting quickly here, uh, just to get a couple more quick questions in. I know you guys are busy. Uh, are Do you think we're in a golden age of gaming right mm. now? Where are we at? Are we are, are we in between like, you know, really big uh, like explosions of creativity and development? Is it happening right now? What, what, what do you guys think? I think it's definitely happening in the indie space. And, you know, I think that Unity and Epic giving, you know, ha- having the game engines, with the, you know, Unreal and Unity right. is like is what's driving the most interesting stuff happening in gaming nowadays. I think that on the uh, AAA level, it's uh, a lot of paint by numbers and i guess mm-hmm. that sort of makes sense just given the investment of these you know so like 100 plus million dollar yeah, costing more than movies sometimes now yeah right um but uh i mean i know that we're biased but i think john would probably agree. like you know our golden age is the of gaming is the 16-bit era and i think there's something about that beyond just the fact that we all grew up in it like i like i've always found it weird but delightful that when i've spoken at like high schools or colleges with kids who did not grow up during the 80s or 90s like they talk about they talk fondly about playing like the 8-bit and 16-bit games whereas we don't talk fondly about playing like pitfall like like we're not looking back on like the previous generation like still playing frogger so there was something about the games from that era part of it is, is like the simplicity and the easy to pick up and play aspect of it Aside from that, I think that sort of the PS2, Xbox, that original, that mm. sort of was like a special yeah. time. And I think, you know, when Grand Theft Auto came off the computer and, you know, I think it was Grand Theft Auto 2 came out, I felt like, okay, this is like a whole new thing happening here. Things started to go online. That's what I think, like, it was a big, big shift. But now it's sort of obviously the games are bigger, faster, better. Online is better. But I think that there's, there's, there, there, it's, it's, everything's great, but it's not like, it's not the sort of golden age that, you know, we saw. Right. In the years prior. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I agree. I entirely agree. Is it on the way? The interesting thing is do, 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 you know, Apple TVs become so powerful that, you know, you are basically don't even have a PlayStation anymore. Sony PlayStation is just an app. And right. Is that going to be the, the sort of thing that changes everything and then brings more people to it because you don't have to buy a console? And, you know, is that is, is once the, once things like that are more powerful and you don't need a full console, I think that's the next. It feels, for, for my for my opinion, it feels like that's only a matter of time, right? It feels like there's going to be a day where the next console isn't a console at all, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, every it happened in every single industry. Yeah. Who buys DVDs anymore? I mean, right. who you know, you, everything is done through your TV, and there's already the gaming. Apple's already started this arcade thing. Yeah. You know, it's it's there. Just the engines aren't strong enough yet. But you know, in five years, who knows? Think about how far we've come in the past five years. You know. You know, what if you're able to play every single game you want, you know, over uh, over the Internet? And sure. You never have to buy a console again. 
I, mean, I think part idea. of the answer to the question is why do you think Google Stadia was not more successful? Since that's exactly I was just going to bring up Stadia discussing because yeah. they, yep. they did have a lot of those games that, that it was powerful enough to 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 play some of those AAA games, but it still was not successful. They did. They didn't have yeah. any original content. I think. They I think it became, comes back to they software. Kind of tried to software cut moves in. hardware. Yeah, agreed. Right. They kind of tried to cut in on all the work that all these other people have done and just said, well, you know, we could package this up some way too. I think Amazon's trying to do it too with this new thing called Luna. And I don't yeah. know why. I mean, didn't you just watch Stadia? It's like somebody trying to come up with a quick bites, you know, this another quick right. quick bite platform. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine, but you know, Amazon has the money behind it to do it, but there was just no reason to buy a Stadia. I mean, there was, there was the nothing thing. you couldn't it- get anywhere else. As always, software moves hardware. I remember my because Stadia went free for I don't know maybe it was a promotion or whatever it was a couple of weeks ago. And my son, my my son turned to me and goes, "Dad, Stadia is free now." Like waiting for me to be like, "Oh right, let's sign up and get." It. And I'm like, "What are you going to play on there? No, you're going to play absolutely you're gonna play, not. You're going to play Assassin's Creed from two years ago. What are you going to play on there?" No, that's why, why I have a Nintendo Switch. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's why you have a Nintendo. So you. So you can play The Witcher at 15 frames a second. Yep. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm excited uh, about it. Uh, you are excited about it. Um, yeah. It's it, it's. Uh, I think that's where it is going. I just think for some reason they couldn't they couldn't introduce it in a way to get anyone excited. That's the technology they were right they might about. Just that be, they might not be the timing might not be right. But I think that's definitely where it's going to go. I think it's you know just like Sega Channel. It was too soon. Right. Sega. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sega Channel was was a pretty cool idea, wasn't it? I had the Sega internet connection. I used to play Eternal Champions online, and I thought it was the coolest thing wow. in the world. <laughs> you guys have uh, you guys got time for two more quick questions? Yeah, go for it. No problem. Yeah, of course. I think it was CES nineteen ninety one, right? Nintendo embarrasses Sony in front of the world. Yeah, right. Uh, Summer CES. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sony bounced back, obviously. Uh, with a vengeance. Is there any embarrassment that you guys had in your life that you bounced back from, that you learned from and helped you move forward? There's so many examples to pill from, but look up the New York Times review of my book. <laughs> oh, really? Did it re- did it review poorly in New York Times? Uh, you should read it. It's, it's oh, an interesting I think- article. It's like the first five paragraphs talking about like all these really cool scenes, and then it, the the pivot is like it would make sounds like it would make a great movie, but it makes a terrible book or something. Like oh, that. get out of here! <laughs> what? And Jonah's there, like I told you, Blake. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You, you know, listen though, to me. you cannot, you can't take that as a great embarrassment because these are reviewers and yeah. they're. Looking no, but it was embarrassing at the time. That. Like that right. was my lesson yeah, yeah. in terms right. of like what can you learn? Like I was. Right. I was, you know, you have to remember too that I had the job where I couldn't wear shorts, and so when Console Wars <laughs> and the I had all these out, shorts, <laughs> yeah, it was like the first time that anything I've written was read by anybody other than like sure. Jonah, yeah. my wife, or my parents. So like, right. the fact that the I New York Times it, was yeah. not so happy with it, I, I, you yeah, know, you just assume you, I don't you care, assume the but, you, but you assume the first time you get reviewed by the New York Times, it's going to be great. That's just how you picture it, right? One day I'm going to have, you know, hope. yeah, exa- right. But in your head, you're like, yeah, that's how that's going to go when that happens for me one day. Well, I think uh, less so that than more so that like you think that that opinion is like, you know, a God's opinion. Yeah. And like, right, of course. So it, this is like my big moment when in, realize, in, when in reality you realize like uh, that's just one person's opinion and people sure. seem to really like the book. So who, who really, right. really cares? Agreed. My biggest embarrassment is definitely walking into it with a studio head with Blake and shorts and flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a great way to close no, this I episode. Have a better, I have a better embarrassment for Jonah. It's good. Go. Jonah circa 1996. Oh, and young man, very handsome, dapper young Jonah Tullis. What kind of console would you like? Oh, I'd like a Sega Saturn, please. <laughs> that was a huge, that was huge, hugely embarrassing. You're never going to get that $400 Conflict. back. I had oh a Saturn. Oh my god, they got me. Epcot <laughs> Center. Epcot. They some free gaming at Epcot Center, and finally, I didn't have a 16-bit console. I had Nintendo. Finally, my parents were like, you know what? We're gonna get you a new video game system, and I was like, what? Okay, they're like, do you want PlayStation or Sega Saturn? And because Tom Kalinske sold me at Epcot Center yeah. with this crazy yeah. Saturn display, yep. I chose the Saturn, and uh, I had three games. And so that was you the went. End of it. You went from 8-bit to 32-bit. That must have been mind blowing. I told you it was very difficult to get my parents on board for a, yeah, uh, for you a weren't system, kidding. but yes. Yeah. 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 I think I was a few years late to the Nintendo. I feel like I got a Nintendo around the time um, SNES came out and it wasn't because like they were trying to save a buck. I think it was just like, 
oh, it's time to get that Nintendo they've been asking about for right. two, three years. Sure. Really quick predictions who for who wins the next PS5 versus the Xbox. Who, who's it, it, do you feel like who's coming out on top here? Well, obviously the consumer. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, true. yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, PlayStation Five would be my. I guess. I'm part emotionally driven, partial to Team Sony, yeah. just because I know more people yeah. at Sony, and I think what yep. they do is awesome. So uh, yep. I'm gonna admit my bias, but I think so too. Sony, yeah. Okay. You know what? Yeah, I, I've had both them in the past, and and I think that yeah, Sony just seems to be you know slightly ahead of the game. But more focused you know, on the gamer, I would say. Right. Like just uh, not, not meant as like a slight to Microsoft more. So it's just like a kudos to Sony. Right. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that once the narrative series releases, we can have another quick chat. I think the audience would love that. Um, but honestly, Absolutely. thank you so much for your time today and yeah, good thanks, luck guys. with the negative narrative series. And, you know, we just love the work you're doing so far. Um, so thanks so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks guys. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks guys. Great talking. You got it. So that's it for our interview with Blake and Jonah. Thanks again for stopping by, guys. Please check out Console Wars, the book, and Console Wars, the documentary, now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. They are required reading or watching for all retro gaming fans. Have a great night, folks. And remember, gaming should be fun. See you soon.